Hey, thanks for tuning in to Sheer Crime. We are on episode five this week, diving into part four of the trials of Gabriel Fernandez. Yikes. Yikes is fucking right. And I'm fucking screaming in this episode. So I'm just going to give everyone a forewarning. This had me screaming caps locks on everything. Oh my God. So, so I might get loud. irritating. I might get loud. You might need to turn down the volume, but I'm just telling you, it's fucking frustrating and super crazy. I Yeah. It's ha- hard to wrap your mind around it. It truly is because it, you know, you want to believe that there's good out there and that there are agencies out there for the good of its people. Yep. And then you kind of find out that that's not exactly how life works. Nope. There's a lot of dirty little secrets out there. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess it's a good fucking thing that we drink on this podcast. (laughs) Because we need it. We need it. If not every episode, definitely this one. Yes. And we're switching it up this week. We are. So we've been doing like the seltzer, like in a can, let's say. Yes, the pop tops. Um, Pop tops, right? So, well... We needed something a little bit stronger this week. <laughs> we did. <laughs> so we are actually trying the Apothic Crush. It's a smooth red blend. It's a it's a wine. And don't don't get mad at us, but we actually chilled it. We did. We did because we like I cold love chilled drinks. red wine. I mean, so do I. We're gonna be the outsiders, I'm sure. But hey. That's how I like my stuff. I need it cold. It's weird warm to me. I don't 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 know. know. I was born in a trailer park. I'll probably die in a trailer park. (laughs) I chill my red wine, okay? That's right. (laughs) All right. So let's get this baby open. Woo! Mm, Not bad. I thought it was going to be a little bit louder, but... So did I. Hey, it works. It's also not um, carbonated. That's right. So... It's not going to be as loud as our pop tops normally are. Ooh, listen to that, you guys. I love that You tell sound. me when to stop, That's girl. good. All right. For now. I might need a refill. We'll see. Oh, I just love that oh my sound. God. That sounds great. Did you like that, you guys? <laughs> Do you want to hear us swish it? <laughs> All right. All we right. We have to clank this time. Yes. Cheers. Cheers. Ooh, that's good. That's good. It's, it's so smooth. smooth. Oh, it's so smooth. Yes, it totally is. It even says smooth red blend on it. But well, in some red wine, I mean, it has almost like a really harsh first. Yes, like swallow, like a punch to your tonsils. Yes, and this yeah. one isn't bad. That's no, why I like it. No, I was honestly expecting that to be a little bit uh, stronger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but no, I like it. And I don't like it too. a lot. Me too. All right. I'm going to go through a little bit of a recap okay. from last week, just to get everyone on the same page. Although, y'all should have listened to last yes, week's episode. But obviously. You should have listened to it. But if you haven't... I remind you, it has been a week. Exactly. So, last week, Pearl's relatives gave their testimony about her abusive and very traumatic childhood. Yeah. And where she came from and kind of how she became who she is, really. Right. We then also heard from her uncle's partner, David Martinez, who again raised Gabriel until he was four. Right. We also heard from Gabriel's teacher, Jennifer Garcia, about her memories and interactions with Gabriel in the months leading up to his death. Yeah. Completely tragic. We see the Mother's Day gift that Gabriel made his mother mm-hmm. and it unfortunately was sitting on his desk the day after she found out he had passed away and 
that to me broke me. Oh, that one was hard. That broke me. That was hard. That was a very charged episode, wasn't it? Because a part of you almost kind of feels a little bit sorry for Pearl as well as a child, you know, young Pearl who went through some very fucked up shit. Yep. Very small side tangent. Anyone who knows me knows that I am obsessed with documentaries. It doesn't Mm -hmm. even have to be true crime. I came across on YouTube the other day the new Paris Hilton documentary. And I mean, I'm a little bit older than you, but Paris was a big deal when I was like 18. The Simple Life was like I remember her reality show. Yeah. (laughs) And like, we all just friggin' loved her. Like, Mm -hmm. that's hot. That's hot. Like, we all (laughs) said that, right? So I, of course, was like, okay, I'm going to watch this. Why not? And something that I thought was really interesting and how it kind of played into last week's episode Mm -hmm. was there was a point where I said, when people have traumatic experiences, especially in their younger years, I believe that there's two camps out there. You're Mm -hmm. either going to be that person that uses that to really rise up and become somebody and, you know, rise out of the ashes like a phoenix. Exactly. Or you're going to be that person that just lets those traumatic experiences almost form like a chain around your ankles and hold you down and not allow you to become who you're supposed to become. And I thought, this is so weird that I mentioned that. And then I'm watching a documentary about somebody who, while she was born into a very prominent and rich family, she had some traumatic experiences, which not many people know about. Right. And it really goes to show how much of a fucking badass she is on just becoming her own person outside of her name. Yeah. So I don't know. It's just interesting how they kind of went. It all just kind of ties yeah, in. Yeah, it all ties in. Yeah. Even so, if it's not exactly true crime. Exactly. So if you see that out on YouTube, <laughs> I definitely recommend watching it. Yes. It's it's interesting. I might have to now. You should. Now, this week's episode is called Death Has Got Him by the Hand. Oh. I just always think about that little puffy hand in the hospital photo. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. Well, it starts with news reporters talking about the criminal charges filed against the four social workers. The John and Ken show on KFI AM 640 radio states that DCFS of L.A. County decided to fire the social workers directly involved and the supervisor, Gregory Merritt. He was one of the four Social workers. Right, right. But he wasn't, he was the supervisor of one of the direct social workers. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So we get to meet Greg Merritt. Yeah. On screen. We hear that he is facing 10 years in prison and has never been in trouble before and has only had traffic tickets. Yeah. Which is crazy to me because he's probably in his 40s. They actually said he was 62. Oh my God. Yeah. I know. He looks good. No, he looks good. I didn't, when he said that, I was like, what? And I had to rewind it and I specifically wrote it down. So I was like, "Uh, can I get in touch with his dermatologist? Because come on now. Well, yeah. So he'd only have had traffic tickets and now he's facing this 10 year prison sentence. Could you fucking imagine? No. And it's, I'm, you can tell just by looking at his face and the way he's speaking, he is absolutely terrified and almost dumbfounded a little bit by Uh, how he got to where he is at this point. Yeah, like a look of shock. Right. Yep. And his defense attorney is telling him that he sent in a motion to the judge to dismiss on all grounds that there wasn't enough lawfully admitted evidence at the preliminary hearing to require him to stand on trial. That's called a 995, and they are almost never granted. Yeah. Which I wrote so... 
what really is the point to that? Is it just to try and extend out the trial? Is it just to be filing motions? What's the point of it? You know, I think it's a game plan. In all honesty, it must and it, be. It, there has to be reasons why they do these things. Yeah, and sometimes I think it is to give them more time. If not to, maybe they have every bit of you know information that they need for his case, but maybe the other side. Mm-hmm. Like has something that needs to be found out or something. Because you hear that a lot, that they file motions that they know are not going to get. Yeah. It's almost like a waste of time for the court. Yeah. But I think it's. There's a tactic. There must be a tactic behind it. Now, his lawyer does say that this is an unusual case and it's really unprecedented in California. Greg tells us that he was a supervising children's social worker for 10 years. Yep. He had the desire to go into this type of work all his life. He managed a unit of six social workers at DCFS. On average, he said, the social workers would have 30 cases, sometimes 35 to 38 apiece. Yeah. Per social worker. Sometimes 38 children would be under one social worker. Yeah. How do you have enough time to make sure that all these kids are being taken care of? I mean, it makes sense why this happened. Because if they're, the workload is crazy. Oh, that doesn't even allow you an hour per child per day. No. And an hour to that child is nothing. Right. Their whole life is hell. Especially when some of these social workers have to go to their house. Right. That's going to take. Travel time. We're talking LA. These people don't get from point A to point B. No. In 10 minutes. No. My God, no. No. They're sitting in traffic all their life. Yeah. But he said that the most he physically ever had to supervise as the the main supervisor of these social workers was a total of 280 children that huh. he had to manage at one point in time. Yeah. That shouldn't be allowed. That shouldn't be allowed. It should not be allowed. There has to be another way. There, they have to be able or figure out a way to outsource some of this, like Mm -hmm. figure out other agencies they can work with to help with the shortage of social workers. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Um, The thing that sucks too is that the amount of hoops that you have to jump through to even try to help out one of these agencies (laughs) is unbelievable. (laughs) It is. I looked into at one point becoming a foster parent because I just thought, why not? We've got the extra space. I feel like we have a pretty solid home. It wouldn't be a bad place for somebody to come to, even if it was just a refuge. Sure. I'll tell you, all of the things that have to be done to get me approved turned me off. Wow. And yet, it's fucking sad because all of those things should be in place. Right. But for me, it's too much. It's just crazy. It is. It's it's crazy that to hear that sheer amount of number of cases that he has to take care of. And he said he doesn't know each and every one of them. He's like, it's just, it's far too many cases. You you can't. Yeah. There's not enough time in the day. Even if you worked all day long, there's not enough time in the day to figure that out. No. And this is why this tragedy happened. Oh, it's disgusting, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. So Greg was talking about when he first heard of the case, it seemed pretty straightforward. You know, Mm -hmm. it was a child living with a relative. The relative was unable to care for that child anymore. So then the child ended up living back with the mother. I mean, this is pretty textbook. Yes. It seems like a pretty standard procedure about how things would end up working. But if the child was taken out of the mother's care at one point in time, I do think that that needs to be investigated again to see if it's still a stable environment for that child to go back into. Absolutely. Absolutely. So he talks about when he finds out um, about Gabriel, he says, I was devastated. 
You know, this was something I never experienced in the 23 years of doing social work. He said he had heard of other tragic caseloads. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, something goes wrong and maybe somebody dies or or comes close to it. Um, but he said that that had never been on his watch um, under his supervision. He said that when he found out that Gabriel was in the hospital and in a coma, he was hoping, you know, that this hospitalization would have led to a recovery. Yeah. And eventually, you know, him leaving and maybe going with family or maybe another home. Of course. Yeah. Um, However, you know, Gabriel did pass away and he says his heart was broken. And you can see that on his face. Yes. He didn't take this lightly. No. He didn't take it as, you know, this was just a a name in his stack of names that he has to take mm-hmm. care of. This this hit home. You know, I you think he tell. truly felt like he let somebody down. Absolutely. And he felt probably a little responsible, of course. Oh, you, yeah. you take on a little bit of that guilt because you could he, have done you something. You could have done something more. Yeah. Yep. Or at least in this case, maybe his team could have done something. Exactly. Too. So he says that, you know, no child should die at the hands of their parents and especially ones that they're supposed to be managing. Mm -hmm. Now, social workers try to do the best that they can do. I mean, I don't believe that somebody goes into social work to neglect somebody who needs help. People who are called to social work are doing it because they want to do right in the world. Right. They want to give back. They want to help those who can't help themselves. And it's not an easy job. Not an easy job. So if you're going to do that, you obviously care about helping people and you want to to make a difference in this world especially with children yeah and i don't believe these people go into it for the paycheck because i don't believe that they get paid a ton of money they do not it's a lot of work it's very stressful Mm -hmm. it's very tragic and traumatizing you're not making six figures Mm -hmm. so he says you know every single one of us would have said i never saw it coming however those red flags are very apparent after an incident has happened well I call bullshit a little bit on that. I mean, I get where he's coming from, but come on. He needed medical attention multiple times. I'll say it a little bit louder for everyone in the back who can't hear me. Please do. This kid was shot in the face with a BB gun and no medical attention. None. Was sought after. How much bigger of a red flag do you need? I know. A fucking BB gun in your face. Yeah. Like, not to mention the beatings with the belt buckle that caused him to bleed. That also needed to have medical attention. Oh, right? yeah. To me, this was frustrating because was. there was red flag after red flag after red flag, and they were right in your face. Yeah. They weren't, you know, light pink flags. They were fucking fire engine red flags. Oh, yeah, no, right they were in your blinking. Right in your fucking eyeballs. Yep. No, totally. And the thing is, is that what sucks is I don't think pictures were taken. I don't get the impression. I no. get the impression there was note taking. Not very good note taking, but note taking. And the fucked up thing is, is like you said, all you have to do is look at this kid. Yeah. Just fucking look at him. You can tell something is going on. Well, and we find out that some of the deputies didn't even ever see Gabriel. They were there to check mm. on him and they never fucking saw him. That is a fucking red flag. You're Seriously. there to make sure he is in a good place. Yep. But all you guys are fucking doing is listening to the goddamn parents. They're going to tell you what they want to tell you. and what Absolutely. You, what they want you to hear. Yeah. Get the kid out there. Take him away from the parents to see what he tells you. What does he tell you without the manipulation of his parents around? Yeah. I mean, 
it seems like a no-brainer to me. And Because it is a no-brainer. You guys, I'm already screaming. I'm already pissed. Just wait. It gets much worse. That's all right. We get into <laughs> all of it. We get into all of it. So one thing that Greg says is that, you know, critical thinking skills become a challenge when you're overworked. And if there wasn't so much stress, then you may have seen those red flags. And I think some people would look at this as him almost making an excuse for why some of this was ignored. Sure. But I also 100% believe that he is right in in yeah. his speaking. They are severely overworked. And when you are that way and your stress level is high all day Mm -hmm. you are not able to fine tune those things and notice that you're skimming and you overlook things yeah i I think it just happens because you're taking on too much and your brain can't handle all of that yeah and it's stressful yeah and when stress happens weird things happen to your mind absolutely and the way you view things so i do get it and i'm yeah you know i want to play devil's advocate a little bit because it's like i can understand if it was like spankings that were a little bit over the top things that could be questioned as discipline versus abuse correct but in gabriel's case it is so different that is it's just so different it is it is it's it's way past just mild abuse well and all of his stuff was very out in your face right on his fucking face right it wasn't you know this kid is wearing long sleeves in the middle of July and it's 100 degrees outside. Right. Because he's covering bruises. I mean, the kid's walking around with two black eyes. Right. You know, and that's not normal. No. Um, he also goes to say that the system is just overtaxed and that social workers shouldn't ever be trying to handle 30 plus cases. It's fucked up. That's not okay. It's not okay. It's. I mean, half that, maybe. Right. Half of that amount, maybe. And even that. That still would be hard. Would. If you're having to check in, say you have to check in on a child once a week. Yeah. If you have to go physically to their house, that might take you two hours. Yeah. To go there, stay there, interview, talk, chat, whatever you need to do, then go back. And you have to do that with 30 children. Yeah. It's not happening. No, there's only some 40 kids hours are gonna a go, week. Yeah. Some kids are going on the wayside. Then they, then they kind of get forgotten, which Gabriel did. Yeah. Now, we do meet Mark Cherna who is the Director of Human Services in Allegheny County. And he's basically stating that, you know, it is very traumatic to remove a child. I totally get that. Oh, my gosh. And it's all about preservation of the family. Yep. Totally get it. But if they are severely abused, it's best to get them out of the fucking house. Exactly. I get that, yes, kids do tend to grow up better if they are in the household, even if it's not completely ideal, that white picket fence type house ideal. Yeah. No one's house is going to be like that, and that's okay. Yeah. But when they are abused to the point that Gabriel was, get that child the fuck out of that house. I think he needs someone else. Right. And I think the biggest thing that you got to look at, too, is like, look at, is there fucking love going on in that household? Because you can be an overworked single parent raising your kids on fucking food stamps in a one bedroom, maybe a studio apartment, right? That does not mean that you can't take care of your kids. Right. But if you're that parent that is collecting children for a welfare check and is beating them and is hiding one in a fucking cupboard all day, that child is not in any way, shape or form going to do better staying at home. Right. So it's not. No. It's, it's just all of this is so tragic to me. It's frustrating. You know, and, and Mark Turner goes on to say, you know, how do you preserve a family? That's always been the challenge. And of I get course, it. Of course. It's yeah. totally a challenge. And, you know, they say that kids 
typically, and I want to say that in quotations, do better in a home with their biological parents. Sure. They typically do. Yeah. But let's stress that word typically in Gabriel's case. Yeah. He wasn't typical. No. 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 He was the exception. Absolutely. He needed to be taken out of his this household. Yep. We then see Michael Nash, who's the executive director of LA County Office of Child Protection. He had stated that DCFS has the power to walk into someone's home and take their children away. Yeah, it's scary. They are the only people that have that authority to do that. Yeah. And social workers being called on to essentially be detectives and do detective work. I mean, that's what they're being called upon to do sometimes. Yeah. Not only are they doing their social work, but now they have to be detectives and dig in and figure out what's actually going on when they're not trained to do that. No, and going back to last week's episode where they said that the newest, the greenest social workers in the unit were usually put on these types of cases. Which is nuts! Absolutely fucking crazy and ass backwards. Oh my god. Can like, you imagine? I mean, okay, you've heard the term like sink or swim or like throw you to the wolves. Yes. Like, that is this. That is this. I mean, oh my what better way to scare the shit out of people and get them to not want to work in social work? Exactly. And it's called like getting them used to it. You know, you get your feet wet, you dip your toe in, yeah. then you dip your whole foot in. Isn't it like similar with like 911 operators? Like you need to have so much background before you can be a 911 operator oh my god totally makes sense i would be terrible if i got a phone call i wouldn't know what to do i would be screaming i'd be crying for them and i'd be like run get out of your house yeah (laughs) hey why are you calling hang up the phone yeah (laughs) grab a knife yeah i know (laughs) clearly we have really bad 911 calls that are coming in these are terrible (laughs) um and very tragic they sound like but yeah, there's there's a level of, you know, starting off as a beginner and becoming advanced. And mm-hmm. these situations are by far advanced. Yeah. Because like you said, they are trying to preserve families. So removing a child is going to be a last resort. Yes. That's not something you just show up and do the first time. Right. Unless, of course, I mean, I, I would assume there's got to be situations out there where it has warranted For removal sure. almost right away. For sure. Then we get to meet Michael Jenico. He is the former chief attorney of the Office of Independent Review mm-hmm. in L.A. County. I did a little bit of a side Google on this. Oh, good. Um, so the Office of Independent Review was a civilian oversight group that was created by the L.A. County Board of Supervisors in 2001. Oh, okay. And it actually ended in 2014. So it's no longer oh. a thing. Oh, yeah, which I found interesting. That is interesting. Its mission was to monitor the L.A. County Sheriff's Department and provide legal advice to ensure that allegations of officer misconduct involving the L.A. County Sheriff's Department were investigated in thorough, fair, and effective ways. So were they for the sheriffs? Is that what it sounds like? I believe so. Okay. Is what I kind of gathered from it. But again, a lot of that was kind of jargon i didn't really understand sure (laughs) got it so michael basically says that there's researchers on both sides okay ones that say family unification is best for the child even under not ideal circumstances but then you have the other side that says the type of isolated approach can and does result in child fatality wow and it did yeah you know you ha- i don't think it can be one way or the other i think there always has to be a gray area because you can't you can't just think of it one way or the other. Yeah. Because each case is going to be different and unique. Yeah. Well, we're human. Exactly. Yeah. 
So then we meet Karen Bass. Now, she's a member of Congress for L.A., and she's been in Congress for eight years as of this documentary. And she's fabulous. She is, yeah. And she actually was in the state legislature for six years before that. She has been involved in the child welfare system um, for about 28 plus years. So she got in back in the 80s yep. when the crack cocaine epidemic exploded. Oh, could you imagine being being alive oh. back then and having to deal with that as a like a police job. department or yeah. a part of the government? Wow. That was big. That, that was, was big. It yeah. was really big. People yep. were dying all the time. All the time, yeah. And children were probably left by themselves all the time. And it, I can assume it's very scary. Oh, yeah. I mean, it definitely sounds like that out of like an apocalyptic novel, right? Seriously, it, doesn't, it almost doesn't sound like it ever actually happened because, I mean, we didn't live through that. We don't really right. know what that was like, especially somewhere like California. Yeah. Can you imagine how bad it was there? I mean, no. it probably was bad here in Minneapolis. I'm assuming it probably was bad all over, but yeah thinking about actually living through that and it being a real thing is kind of mind-boggling to me. Well, it truly is. And I think a lot of that speaks to how lucky and blessed we are. Mm-hmm. You know, we are suburban women yep. who grew up in the suburbs. Yeah. So we didn't get to experience that, but there's plenty of people who remember it. And yep. this is one of those people. So mm-hmm. Karen says that, you know, she was around when all of that happened. Um, she said that all of a sudden foster care numbers exploded um, she said, now, um, Karen happens to be an African-American woman. Mm-hmm. And she starts talking about how African-American children numbers were skyrocketing as well as far as being um, placed into foster care. She said that they were often removed when they don't need to be, sometimes too often. And due to the negative view of African-American families and African-American people in general, it became almost like a sick game. Mm-hmm. Um You do hear about the numbers of children or African-American children in foster care being a lot higher than, let's say, white families. Which is terribly sad. It truly is. I don't understand that. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. No. It should all be about the family structure and what that looks like. Yeah. And if that child is in danger in any way, that child gets taken out. Yeah. Regardless of skin color, regardless of anything like that, it should solely be based on what their living conditions are like, and how their parents treat them. Yeah. And I think a lot of it goes to the fact that, you know, a lot of, you know, minorities tend to make a lot less money, Mm -hmm. tend to have a lot less desirable living situations, and therefore they are just looked at as not fit to be parents. Yeah. And I don't know, look at almost every single celebrity who has come from nothing. Yep. They talk about that, mm-hmm. you know? They talk about how they had a lot of times raised by single parents. You know, mom was never around because she had to work all the time. Mm-hmm. Maybe they were raising their siblings or their older sibling raised them. Like, there is no perfect. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that people can't rise up. Right. Hashtag Paris Hilton. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, okay, so then they're talking about how it, Obviously, there's a racial component to this. Yeah. Um, She also says that a lot of times um, during sexual and really bad physical abuse, those are the times when you have to remove the child. And a lot of times back in the 80s, these children were removed kind of before they got to that point. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, that was a drug-related situation. Things were getting really out of hand. Mm -hmm. So then Karen goes on to say that, you know, when it comes to this whole dichotomy of family preservation versus removing children in bad situations 
it's a swinging pendulum Mm -hmm. every single day. I mean, rock, meet hard place, Mm -hmm. right? You have to make these determinations. Like you said, it's not a this or that. There's a lot of gray. Yeah. Yep. Next, we meet Elizabeth Bartlett. Now, she's a faculty director of the Child Advocacy Program at Harvard Law. And she goes on to talk about um, quite a few things. Mm -hmm. And one thing that stuck out to me was that very little emphasis is put on child rights. Oh, yeah. That right there was like, boom. Yeah. That holy shit. That's why that's why the system is the way it is, right? Yes. That is why it's broken. She's saying that, you know, the system does everything they can to try to keep the child at home, but sometimes it's much more risky to keep them at Mm -hmm. home. Now, workers in this case seem to be following the basic guidelines given to the child protective services. Mm -hmm. So they are investigating the claims, they are showing up at the door, they are speaking with the parents. Basically, they are following the social worker's handbook, right? Yep. The last resort is to remove a child. So they're trying, they've got this open case. They're making all the notes. They're just not actually looking yep. at what's happening. Exactly. So in this case, <laughs> I truly believe they're following too many rules. Yep. Yep. And they're not actually looking at what's happening. And using common fucking sense. Common sense. It's yeah. not about That's any what's training. lacking. Yes. I think number one in this entire situation this entire you case, got it you nailed it it's common fucking sense absolutely and guess what you can't teach common sense you can't teach it <laughs> no. it's not in the handbook no oh so the last thing she says is that the system is broken because it values adults rights way more than children's rights mike fucking drop and it's true and you know children being so vulnerable i think we need to of course value adult rights because well, adults yes. are adults understandable but and when they tr- make mistakes and sometimes those can be changed of course yeah. but it's like children have rights too and they're people too and they're vulnerable people that yes. cannot take care of themselves yes so we have to have our eyes open to that yeah so then we meet leslie Hymov. she's the executive director of the children's law center of california she says that the social workers that were charged were a part of the Family Preservation Unit, which makes sense. Yep. So it was their job to keep families together, but you can't ignore the warning signs and continue to let things escalate and escalate and escalate. Absolutely. And this kind of brought me back to how Pearl, she already knows how to speak with DCFS. Yes. To hide all these warning signs and these red flags. Mm -hmm. She's been in this system forever. So she knows what they want to hear so that they'll leave. Absolutely. And they won't dig any further and or look any further into what's going on in their household. So Leslie says, even if they had said that they didn't know about all these written down and notated events. Yeah. The BB gun, the chunks of hair missing, the hit with the belt buckle, the suicide note. Even if they didn't know about that, they could view him and see that he needed help. Yes. But they knew all of this. Yeah. All of this was documented. The BB gun one alone fucking shocks me. It truly does. Because it that leaves a fuck- mark that is so distinct. You're shooting a gun at someone. It's a yeah. fucking gun. In the face. Like, it's still, I, I like almost can't talk about it because it doesn't make fucking sense to me that that would not warrant at least seeking medical attention. 
<sighs> but they just fucking walked away from it every goddamn time. They yeah. didn't do one thing about it, you know? Yeah. So then we see more, like, news coverage, again, about the, the criminal charges on the social workers. They're, they're really emphasizing that. And Greg Merritt basically says that, you know, he was trashed in the news media and he was battling to try and clear his conscience because it was weighing heavy on him. Oh, yeah. He'd never been in something like this. He obviously knew that this was nothing he had planned or wanted to happen to to Gabriel, of course. Right, yeah. He didn't intentionally neglect this child. Right. But of course the media is going to go off. And people are going to say what they want to say. What? You the know? media? Social media? Are you and the news? Kidding? Taking <laughs> this is, sides? This is weird. No. You've got to be joking. They well, are on, they are, they have no bias, oh, right? Absolutely not. Yeah. They don't have their own agenda. Fuck no that. No way. No. Well, and you know, so like, it made me feel bad for Greg. Because you can see yeah. that he is a normal human being. Yep. And this is weighing heavy on him. Yeah. And of course he did. He would never have wanted this to happen to Gabriel. Who would? Right. And it, it was a, a very awful, awful mistake that should have been caught way sooner. Right? Totally. We yep. know that. Yeah. So then we see Garrett Theroff again, who, who of course, was our LA Times reporter or the former LA Times reporter. Garrett states that the years leading up to Gabriel's death, there had been a lot of people that had come forward um, in private and publicly to talk about the problems with DCFS. Yeah. So it's like, this was already in, in... Kind of a known issue. This was known. This was already happening. What the hell happened? I think it just goes to show, though, that, you know, agencies don't want their names drugged through the mud. So mm-hmm. if there is negative press, they're going to try to hide that shit. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. Apparently, not all press is good press, right? I think we know that. Wow. <laughs> what did we just do there? All right, so moving on, we have Lincoln Saul, who shows up in the documentary. Now, he is a retired DCFS supervisor um, for L.A. County. He worked there for approximately 34 years uh, from 1980 until 2013. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. It's pretty cool to, like, see someone work somewhere for that period of time. You don't see that much anymore. No. People are kind of all over the place. There's always so many opportunities for people to move on, go yep. to different companies. Greener grasses. Right, right. And and it's not the same with millennials and Gen Z where you're stuck one place the rest of your life and that's kind of how it is. So it's it's yeah. just interesting to see. He looks like such a sweet old man. He totally he does. He looks so sweet, like a, like a really sweet grandpa. That's yeah. what he reminds me of. <laughs> no, totally. I totally get that. Yeah, he was saying that the greatest demand was appropriate placements for children taken into protective custody. So... When we're talking about this child preserve or family preservation, yeah. they want to keep the children at home. But if you get to that point where they do have to be removed, where do you bring them? Mm-hmm. Right? We're not just we don't just have these like huge orphanage places that you can right. bring children who technically aren't orphans yet. Right. 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 So these children are still technically their parents. They just can't be taken care of by them at this time. So there was the Emergency Response Command Post. Um, Now, this became a default spot because it was open 24 hours a day. So if somebody had to be taken out of their home Mm -hmm. in the middle of the night, this was a place that they could easily bring them to at least until morning when you can start making some phone calls and figure out where you can place this child. Now, children would come in and wait for placement, uh, but at times the... Wait time became extended and extended and extended. 
they were essentially living in this building. It's crazy. I know. I mean, it makes sense that there's nowhere else to go, but it's just, could you imagine? No. Well, they said that at first there was about 16 kids a month. Yeah. And then it went all the way up to 350 a month. Yeah. Now, where do you put these children? Where are they sleeping? Seriously, in my head, literally, I'm picturing cubicles and kids just like under the desks. Yeah. Like, is that all they have? Or did they actually build this place up to kind of be... Like a gymnasium? Like a big open area? Or it doesn't make... It's very strange. It kind of, in my head too, kind of almost made me think of like a shelter. Right? Yeah. Where it's just yeah. like a big building with just a bunch of cots right. set up. But people um, work in this building too. That's what's right. also super weird. It's like, how does that work? And I know. 350 children? That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Yes. So he says that he wrote to his managers at this time and the board of supervisors, you know, kind of complaining to them, like, here's what's happening. We have all of these children here. We need to do something. And he says that his managers were actually upset that he had disclosed this issue to the Board of Supervisors and that they had actually recommended his termination. Oh, my God. I literally, in my notes, I had what in the actual fuck? Seriously. What is going on? Yeah. What is the fucking secrecy about? Why can't we fucking talk about this shit? I don't know, man. Someone's getting paid. Someone's getting paid. Someone out there big time. Someone is fucking shoving something under the rug and it's going to fucking be all found out. If they do something. Like, something has to be happening. There has to be, because why all the secrecy? If everything that is going on is legal, then what are we hiding? Exactly. That's what I'd like to know. That's the problem. If it's all legal. And I guarantee it's not. (laughs) Conspiracy. Okay. So, he talks about how they had literally tried to fire him over this. He was then threatened with disciplinary action if upper management ever caught word about it again. And basically, there was a little, like, um blurb mm-hmm. you know yeah uh, on a black screen and it said that the la county disputes the number of children who actually stayed overnight at this facility the emergency response command post between the years of like 2005 to 2011 of he said that do. many records from that time were actually shredded hmm shocking wonder why that happened so he you know lincoln goes on to say that to preserve the institution at all costs at the expense of the service that you should be delivering to individuals is the biggest issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're literally protecting their own fucking asses. Yeah. It's fucking criminal and horrifying. I yep. mean, they're they're needing to cover their tracks and get rid of evidence. I mean, obviously, they're yeah. shredding these documents. Yeah. Why what the fuck shredding? would they need to? Yeah. If it wasn't that many kids, why are you shredding the documents? Because it was probably fucking more. Oh, I bet. You know what I mean? Yep. It was probably even more than the 350 that we heard about. Oh, yeah. That was probably just on whatever given day they decided to take count. Exactly. Now, we're back at the L.A. County's Clara Foltz Criminal Justice Center for the criminal trial against Cesaro. Yep. And we see and meet Arturo Miranda Martinez. I love him. I do love him. He's seriously a great guy very genuine yes you tell he has emotion heart of gold yes and he cares he was actually the former security guard at the gain office oh my gosh when they explain that i literally got goosebumps because yeah. in the first episode they mention mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. but they do not go into detail and right. my first thought was why mm-hmm. i want to know right now we find out we do yeah so the gain office 
is essentially a, a department of social services um, where you can go and apply for welfare benefits. Yeah. is kind of the main gist of what it is. They do other things as well, um, but that's that's the main gist of it. Yeah. And we see that Jonathan Hatami is the one that's starting to question Arturo. And that he says that that day, Pearl came in around 4.30 p.m. with three boys and a girl. He noticed all of her tattoos. And his first thought was, this is a gangster chick. And I was like, you are fucking correct, sir. She's uh, a fucking gangster chick. No, and seriously. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. And that, that's not to say that somebody who's heavily tattooed should be judged right based on how they look and right. my other thought with that too is like when i think of somebody walking into an office where you're trying to get benefit or help from the government and you are covered in tattoos how'd you pay for them right for your tattoos, tattoos are not fucking food? cheap right and so he first noticed the cigarette burns on the back of gabriel's head some were small, some were wide, some were fresh, some were old. He also saw purplish, greenish colored bruises around his eyes. Ugh. He basically said he was all beat up. If he had to put him on a scale of 1 to 10, he was at a 20. That's... And Ugh. we've seen that even in those mom pictures, yeah. right? He was completely bruised up. And they even kind of flash back to that photo because I'm sure it was right around that time frame too. Oh, I think it was because it was... Well, he was in there right around... What was it? April 13th? April 26th. Yep. So it was like a month before. Yeah. And as Gabriel was walking past his desk, he grabbed his wrist and out of the corner of his eye had just slightly looked at Arturo. Yeah. And Arturo then saw the marks on his wrists. Yeah. I get the impression that it's kind of like in those movies when somebody takes off handcuffs. Right. And they're like rubbing their wrists because the handcuffs were kind of tight. Yeah. I kind of got the impression that he was almost kind of <sighs> motioning like that. Oh my gosh. And this just poor little eight-year-old boy doing that mm -hmm. is just heartbreaking. It is. And this is so emotional for Arturo. He is oh, yeah. very, very bent out of shape about this, talking and, and on the verge of tears. And he knew right away, child abuse. Mm -hmm. His body was talking or better yet, yelling that he needed help. Yes. So he ended up getting Gabriel's address from Marcella Corona. She was the worker who was at the window at the office. She had wanted to report it, but was told not to by her supervisor and that they don't pay overtime. I'm like, what the fuck is going on in fucking California right now? I know. So the thing is, is that you got to look at this. In a way, set the scene, right? So it's like 4.30 p.m. on a Friday. Mm -hmm. And Pearl walks in with her kids to maybe try to apply for her welfare. Or maybe that's where she's picking up her check. I don't know exactly. They don't go into detail on that detail. part. But mm -hmm. she's there. It's Friday. It's 4.30. The office is getting ready to close down in about 15 minutes. It's a government office. They're not going to stay open for no one, Right. But then you come up with this situation that actually should be taken care of. Absolutely. But they're like, no. Well, you know, she said that she didn't want to get involved because she didn't want to lose her job. That's sad. Well, you know, and what I said is it's so unfortunate that we live in a society where not losing your job is more important than a child's life. Oh, yeah. Look the other way. It Oh my gosh. Mind Gabriel, your business Gabriel kind of a situation. Been, it is. And yeah. Gabriel could have been saved. I mean, 
there hundreds so of times. There are so many incidences that could have been reported that weren't for some reason from all different areas of law enforcement and the Literally. DCFS. It doesn't, none of it makes sense to me. No, it truly doesn't. So Arturo ended up calling his supervisor to explain the situation and his supervisor asked why he wanted to get involved. It's not a part of your job description, he said. I could not even fucking believe that. <laughs> then he says, don't make us write you up. I'm fucking punching walls at this point. Seriously. Every fucking avenue they go, we're not talking about it. Secrets. Nope. Nope. Don't even get involved. It has nothing to do with you. It's not part of your job. Just what the fuck? This, we're humans here. Yeah. We're human beings and we're seeing a child being fucking beaten up and bloody. Like, why the fuck is this a secret? And why do we have to keep it a secret? You know? Again, common fucking sense. Yeah. Stepped in and it was bashed down. Absolutely. I mean, completely crushed. Well, and Arturo wasn't taking it. So no. he ended up calling 911. Yep. And they said it wasn't an emergency. Told him to call the sheriff's office. Called the sheriff's office. He was told that they would send two deputies over. He stressed the fact that he needed medical attention. Yeah. And he's like, so you're really going to do that? You're really going to have the deputies come over? And she said, we'll see what we can do. Again, 29 days before his death. Ugh. He needed medical attention. Yeah. Then he saw the article in the newspaper and couldn't believe it. He was in complete shock. Yeah. The whole fucking system fa failed Gabriel. Yeah. Everyone failed Gabriel. Yeah. He said that he was disappointed in all of his coworkers because nobody was willing to stand up and do what needed to be done. Mm -hmm. And he was disappointed in the supervisor of Marcella, which was Suzanne Harms, because it seemed like all she wanted to do was look good for her company by saving them money. Of course. By telling her, don't report it, stay out of it, go home for the day, yada, yada, we're not paying Move on time. with your life. Yep. Then there's that on-screen blurb here that says, LA County contracts out its Palmdale welfare office to a third party known as Maximus. So we learn what Maximus is um, from Daniel Hatcher. Now, he's an author of the book, The Poverty Industry, The Exploitation of America's Most Vulnerable Citizens. So he's basically kind of like a really smart financial guy. Yeah. He gets all of it. Now, he talks about Maximus and what this is. And to sum it up, it's a for-profit company that contracts to help governments operate services for vulnerable populations, such as, you know, Medicaid, foster care, child support. Now, it is for-profit. You guys. Right. Right. And it's basically set up to help the government save money so they don't have to employ their government employees. Sure. Essentially. Uh, government's union, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. We might be stepping out of the bounds there. But I feel like I a lot know. of it is. <laughs> I saying. would assume so. They get a lot of benefits. Let's put it <laughs> that way. Do. And that can't be cheap, yeah, right? No, not at all. So... Well, yeah. and I'm sure their hourly rate is a lot higher than what it is at Maximus. Right. And what they can charge for their employees there. Yeah. And now Maximus, being that it is a for-profit company, it's also publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Now, I happen to work in wealth management, so I did a little bit of digging, and I found out that this company, as soon as today, as we're recording this, trades for $68.41 a share. Wow. Okay. So this is a an out there company. You can look yeah. them up. You can right? buy stock if in you're, them. Yeah, you can buy stock. If you're interested, their ticker symbol is MMS. Basically, what Daniel Hatcher kind of goes on to talk about is how these very public 
companies that have nothing to do with government agencies, how they somehow get involved. Mm -hmm. So he mentions two large companies that I happen to know a little bit about, uh, one of them being Lockheed Martin Space Systems. Now, they obviously, you know, have to do with space and aeronautics and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're also involved in child support offices. Like, what? Which is weird. It's super weird. And then Northrop Grumman. Now, they build tanks for the military, but they also make millions on state governments meant to serve the poor. So, you know, with welfare offices. So it's like, what the fuck? Well, there's obviously a lot of money in it. Yeah. They talk about a report that is found from Maximus speaking to foster children as, quote unquote, revenue generating mechanisms. Um, focusing on profit, not protection. This fucking... It's a company, my, and it's fucked it's up. It's making my ears bleed, No, I'm it does. You. This is... It's so fucking awful. I just... Oh, and then we hear about the fucking CEO, and I want to fucking bash his goddamn face in, because yeah. how much is he making, Amy? Three million. Three Bruce million. Bruce Caswell. Hmm, interesting. Making three million. What a fucking joke. It's an absolute joke. It truly is. <laughs> and... Looking into Maximus a little bit as well, there have been many claims against them from Mm. former employees suing them over unpaid overtime, which right there circles right back to Suzanne Harms. Yeah. Right? Now, I'm not saying that she was involved in that, but now you can kind of see. They clearly don't want to be paying overtime. It all comes full circle. No one one wants to pay overtime. Yeah. Then we see um, some on-screen texts. Which states, through a California Public Records Act request, we obtained financial records between Maximus and L.A. County. Ooh, yeah. This is going to be juicy. Yep. We have Garrett Theroff, um on screen talking um, through this with us. And he states that Maximus's contract with L.A. County has been worth $110 million over the last decade. Jeez. Year after year. They did not meet the requirements in their contracts, such as work participation rates, way they handle case files. But the contracts kept getting extended each time. And Hmm. weren't they supposed to be up for like rebidding every three years? Yes. And I think since they had been with them for 14 years, they'd only done it twice. Yeah. And it's supposed to be every three years. They're supposed to be up for competitive bidding for other companies to come in and win that slot. So it sounds like they're monopolizing a little bit here. Well, of course, we find out that hundreds of thousands of dollars were being paid to the lobbying firm belonging to the son of the deciding vote on the Board of Supervisors. Whoa. Here's some shady shit coming our way, guys. Right? The lobbying firm was Englander, Kanabi, and Allen. Matt Kanabi was the son of the supervisor, Don Kanabi. And we get the on-screen text that says the former supervisor, Don Kanabi, said that his vote in favor of Maximus has nothing to do with the lobbying efforts of his son's firm. Give me a goddamn break. Seriously. Do you think anyone's going to believe that? No. I mean, how can you? You're a fucking lunatic if you think that we're actually going to fucking believe that. Clearly he thinks we're stupid. every single year, Maximus wasn't doing what they were supposed to do for you guys, but you kept going with them and spending hundreds of millions of dollars with them? Yeah. Give me a goddamn break. Oh, yeah. Totally. Now, we did find out that Marcella Corona stated she did call the sheriff's office that night. She signed a new statement this year. Yeah. And changed her original affidavit. Do you think someone paid her? 
Do you think I someone mean, told her or threatened her, maybe? Potentially. Something had to have happened oh, if yeah. she changed her goddamn story. Garrett says that it clearly changed because of the inquiries of Garrett and this documentary team. Mm-hmm. Because they were starting to inquire and ask more questions. And then all of a sudden, Maximus got involved and Marcella's story changed. Yep. Well, they have to cover their tracks. Of course. Yeah. Then we get the on-screen text uh, that Maximus denies that any decisions were made based on overtime concerns. Supervisor Suzanne Harms declined to be interviewed. Yeah. Because she's fucking trash. That's Seriously. why she declined to be interviewed. And she knows that she'll be called out of all her shit. Yeah. And shit's going to get real messy real quick if she's on this documentary. Oh. So... Besides them, you know, changing the story with Marcella, Maximus also really tried to underplay Arturo's uh, statements, Mm -hmm. you know, stating that, you know, he did not receive the information to call in from Marcella, uh, basically trying to kind of undermine him and make him look inconsistent. Mm -hmm. Um, But Arturo here thinks about all of this that's been going on, right? He knows. He was there. He knows in his heart that what he did was what he did and how it happened, right? Mm-hmm. He got so upset when he found out that, you know, Gabriel had just basically been reduced to ashes and had been cremated um, in light of everything. <sighs> I Just the, the sound of that just hurts my heart so bad because you just want to remember someone as they are, yeah. right? You don't want to think of them in that state, yeah, right? I think it had a lot to do with the cost, honestly. Yeah, I agree. Because it's expensive to have a funeral yeah. for someone. And they were on the poor spectrum. Absolutely. So I, I think that's that's kind of why it happened, I'm sure. Yep. Now, the sheriffs that were called um, during that time uh, when Arturo had made that phone call. Yeah. And she had said that the two sheriffs would be you know, sent out to the house. They got pushed off as kind of a low priority at that time. Mm-hmm. And they didn't end up showing up until about two in the morning. Two in the fucking morning. Which to- seems also weird to me. Why are they showing up that late at night? It seems weird. Because the call was, let's say that the call was put in sometime between 4.30 and 5 o'clock p.m. Why would you wait until two in the morning when you know to that check ch- on an eight-year-old boy who should be asleep? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense, right? So uh, they get there. The fucked up thing is, is that they don't even talk to him. No. They talk to Pearl. That's what upsets me the most. And Pearl says, oh, everything's fine. Of course she's going to say that. She doesn't want them to investigate her anymore. We're sleeping. Everything's fine. We're good. So Jonathan Hatami then comes back on the screen. Now, this is May of 2016 at this time. And he says that in 10 years of being, you know, in the DA... That he had never, ever had a situation where he's had to go to the police to request reports and that they don't immediately hand them over. Right. I mean, he's the prosecution. He is the DA. Well, yeah. The police and him are supposed to be on the same side. Yeah. 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 Like, they would never hide information from him or he never thought they would because why would they? They're on the same team. Right. right? They're on the same team. So he had gone to court and Michael Sklar brings up a report done on the deputies uh that have been going out to the fernandez household and he's like well, what do you mean i have not heard of this i yeah. don't know what you're talking about and we all know that if there's any type of evidence both sides have both to sides have get full it. disclosure exactly and he had never heard of this 
So we come to find out that it was actually an internal affairs investigation into these. It was ordered uh, by the judge on that day to be brought in. And nobody brought it in. Right? So Jonathan starts digging. No one is giving up the goat. Like, he is making phone calls. He is emailing. Nobody's sending him this report. Nobody's telling him anything. And then a friend of his, who happens to be a deputy, gets him in touch with another deputy. And it turns out that there was a report out there. Hundreds of pages of a report. They had interviewed numerous people. Uh, the Internal Affairs did their investigation for three years. Yeah. From 2013 to 2016. That's a lot. And he never even was told about it. Nope. And he's the one covering this case. Yep. But the defense attorney, Michael Sklar, and the defendant knew about it. No one would turn it over to prosecution. So his last resort was to file a Pitchess motion, which yeah. he said is very unusual because he's filing this against his own Department. Sure. His, his own police department. Yeah. And it's basically a motion to state that if a deputy does something bad, a complaint's filed against him or her. So he filed this motion against all the deputies that had been involved and subpoenaed them as well. He wanted to make sure no one would lie to him. Absolutely. And it's like, why are you, wh why are they lying to him? Yeah. What, what's the secret here? What I know. Are we, what are we keeping under wraps here? I, it's driving me nuts. No. It like, has to be covering their own fucking There, there has to be something else. Or this has to have happened multiple times. That mm -hmm. if one gets out, they're all going to get out. It has to be something like yeah. that. It's otherwise, like it doesn't reaction, make sense. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Rumors started flying and they spread really fast. All of the deputies thought that Jonathan was trying to make them look bad. Yeah. Basically, he said that they were saying to be careful and watch your back. Like they're fucking high schoolers. Yeah. Excuse me? You're law enforcement and you work for the government and you're talking like that to each other? Because you're supposed to give him information that should be re readily available for him anyway? Because he's on your team? Exactly. And we meet Deputy Roxanne Hatami, who is well, actually Jonathan's wife. Aww. <laughs> She's very cute. Very cute. Well, she actually also works for the LA County Sheriff's Department. Oh. So you can see where there's a little bit of a riff here. Oh, right? yeah. Totally. And they were actually kind of concerned about their safety, both of them sure. and her safety specifically. Yeah. Um, she really questioned the trust of the department as a whole. And it was basically they were armed and mad. Yeah. Well, and think about it. If she was ever out there patrolling and needed to call for backup, would they show up? Exactly. And she was terrified of that. Yeah. We then meet, and I might butcher this. I'm sorry, guys. Robert Fatcherecci. Fatcherecci? Fatcherecci, maybe? He's a reporter for ProPublica. I did a little bit of back-end work to figure out who they were. I've never heard of them before. Sure. Um, ProPublica is an independent nonprofit newsroom that produces investigative journalism in the public interest. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Okay. Um, so he talks about the being loyal culture, that you're supposed to be loyal to one another. In the sure. department, right? And I think they're talking about the sheriff's department at this point. Well, I think that seems pretty indicative of every company and right. department out there, right? Obviously, yeah. I mean, you're all working for the same company. You're all, you know. Hopefully working for the same cause. Exactly. Yeah. And so Robert had worked at the LA Times and covered the LA County Sheriff's Department and Lee Baca. Now, 
I didn't know who Lee Baca was. Either. No, I know. They started talking about him. I'm like, uh, did I that? miss him in the first oh, we, four episodes? No, yeah, we missed him. So Lee Baca was the 30th sheriff of the LA County. He was actually convicted of obstruction of justice and making false statements and is currently incarcerated at the Federal Correctional Institution Latuna. I was like, what a douche. <laughs> what? I know. Uh, so it's literally just scandal after scandal. And he's actually, right now in 2020, he started serving his sentence in February of this year. Oh. Oh, yeah. So this was very recent. Oh, well, then happening. there's a good chance he was probably let out because of COVID. All right. <laughs> Fuck. Fuck. Oh, my God. Please, no. I'm sorry. So it basically came down to um, inmate abuse in the jails. And that's why he... He got um, incarcerated and yeah. found guilty. Yeah, because his deputies were abusing right. his inmates. Well, and he tried to... So, Lee Baca tried to accuse the FBI of committing a crime when they smuggled a phone into the jails and how they caught all of this intel, I guess, on what was actually happening. Yeah, because they had, like, an informant in the jail yeah. who was kind of ratting them out. Right. And yeah. so, there was basically a full-on war between the Sheriff's Department and the FBI at Yeah, that time. seems smart. Oh, yeah. He's a complete narcissistic asshole. Seriously. I mean... When we saw him on screen, I'm like, this dude fucking sucks. From the moment I saw him, just fucking sucks. Yeah. (laughs) Next. Next. Absolutely. Then, lastly, he even sent deputies to the lead FBI agent's home and threatened her with arrest. Yeah. Didn't go to her office. Threatened her at her home. Well, seriously, that's so, that's such an invasion. Oh my God, you can't, you should not be able to do that shit. Well, thankfully this fucking asshole's in jail, so fuck him. (laughs) So Jonathan Hitami then talks about how the court proceeding over this file, Mm -hmm. you know, that had been so secretive and, and held back from him was very heated. He said the judge finally ordered that the file be turned over and that everyone get a copy. And they did. And Jonathan says there was a lot of information in there and a lot of it that helped their case. Of course it did. Well, of course, because they were on the same side. Way to fucking go, George. Right. You did it. Thank you. Someone doing good work over here. Right. Jeez. So it sounds like many of the deputies were actually disciplined afterwards for not stepping in and doing what they were supposed to be doing or Mm -hmm. not taking down the proper notes. Uh, It sounds like a lot of the reports were very empty Mm -hmm. and all that they were doing were kind of the notes in their uh, mobile command computers that are in their squad cars. Right. Where it's just kind of like, okay, arrived at the place at this time, Mm da-da-da, left, you know? So it's it's very, very primitive. Yeah, vague. That's probably a better word. Um, Then they have Federico Gonzalez. Now, he was a sheriff, uh, on the stand and he's talking about how he was one of the ones who responded to the 911 call uh, regarding that suicide note that we talked about in the last episode that gabriel had written he shows up at the apartment again around like 2 a.m and this time he speaks to Izaro. he never spoke to or even saw gabriel mm-hmm. now who's the one who wrote this note gabriel why wouldn't you at least ask to speak to this child and you're there in concern of this child trying to commit suicide, or so you think. So why wouldn't you be talking to him to see what his mental state is like? Exactly. Again, I don't fucking understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. And again, the time. Why would you show up at two in the morning to investigate about an eight-year-old? I'm sorry, but that doesn't make sense to me. No. Right? So... Based on these notes, he didn't feel that Gabriel was seriously contemplating suicide. So instead, he said that the child seemed spoiled. 
Oh. You know, like a spoiled kid who just doesn't get what they want, so they write this dramatic note. That's how he's looking at Gabriel. Now, first of all, take one fucking look into that apartment and tell me that that child is spoiled. Take one fucking look at Gabriel. How about that? One fucking look at him and you'll know that that's not true. Yeah. But I guarantee you he was in that fucking cupboard when he showed up. Probably. You know? Yeah. That's why you never saw him. Not able to speak. Oh, God. I know. It's stupid. So... Officer or, uh, you know, Sheriff Gonzalez then offers to come back in the morning at like 7 a.m. He offers to come back and scare Gabriel from making these sorts of claims. These, you know, these lies or yep. or joking around about suicide. Yep. And this goes back to what Elizabeth um, and George Carranza had said. Yeah. About when he got scared straight, essentially, by the police officers. This is what they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, this is that time. Yep. And... Pearl is there that next morning and, you know, she just says, oh, yeah, you know, his eyes, he's all beat up because some bigger kids, you know, beat him up. That's why he has all those marks. Mm -hmm. And he's just a liar. Yeah, he's just a liar. So the sheriff puts him in the back of the squad car, tells him that he's going to go to jail if he doesn't stop lying. All of this was told to Elizabeth and George um, by neighbors during one of the candlelight vigils that they had at the apartment afterwards. God. Lastly, we hear from Dan Scott. Uh, He's a retired sergeant for the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. And he says that, you know, multiple calls to a home for a child who is old enough to articulate what's going on, who should be properly interviewed away from the perpetrators is what should have happened here. At no point do we get the impression that police showed up, pulled Gabriel aside, completely out of the manipulation quarters of pearl and azaro and and spoke to him right you know it sounds like they literally took his parents word for gospel fucking common sense can we talk about that again this is this is one on 101 this is what you learn when you first are a part of this department i'm sure like fucking talk to the person who's the one you're concerned about yeah it's him it's gabriel talk to him why aren't you even seeing if he's in the goddamn house i know and it's he's insane still alive. like it's insane it is so bizarre i i, I ugh, screaming i'm fucking screaming again no i know because it just God. it doesn't make sense no none of it does and he says that you know most often something is said when you isolate these children or these victims from the perpetrators, something is said that would, you know, put the hair on the back of your neck up on end. Yeah. Get you feeling like something is not right. And it would be warranted to remove that child fucking immediately. Yep, exactly. And then we get to meet uh, Deputy Lee Lastly on the stand. He's also a part of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. He was actually a school resource officer in Palmdale. Yeah. And then Melissa Chadburn is the one that's actually kind of speaking about Lee. And Lee lastly ends up going out to Gabriel's address. No one is there. He left, went to other schools, then came back that same day to Gabriel's house. No answer again. Yeah. Called the next day and Pearl answered. Pearl stated that she moved Gabriel to Texas and he fucking believed her. Okay. So what? You're on the fucking phone with her and you're just going to fucking believe her? Like, what if he's stabbed on the ground right now because of her and you're just going to be like, oh, yeah, totally believe her. She sounds believable. But again, is it her fucking manipulation with these fucking people? Like, does she really know how to talk to them that well? I I can't imagine that someone with an eighth grade education can fucking talk 
in that much of an articulate sense to police officers, deputies, whoever. Yeah. And get them to believe her every time. I'm like, I know. God. I know. I couldn't believe it. And like the whole thing too is like how with an open DCFS investigation into this child, do you just take the parent who, by the way, is the reason mm-hmm. there's an open DCFS case? Right. How do you just take them at their word? <laughs> I don't get it. And that was it. That was it. That, that was done. Investigation done. Gabriel died a week later. Yep. One fucking week. One week later. Social workers were fired. Little to nothing was done to the deputies. Oh, yeah. Why Why is that different? It's why not. is the punishment different when they were basically doing the same exact thing? Yeah. They were both going there. They were both, quote unquote, writing reports, but not doing a goddamn thing to help him. No one was getting him medical attention. None. So that also fucking pisses me off. It's like, why are they above the fucking law? Because they are the law. And you know what fucking made me mad? Was a little, like, uh, what, screen text that comes up that says, you know, none of the police officers were fired. And it actually described their missteps as, quote unquote, minor. Oh, Minor missteps. I'm sorry. That's not a minor fucking misstep. A child died because you did not take it out of its parents' care. Yeah. Because you never fucking investigated the child. That's the worst type. You investigated just the claim, showed up, took the parent at its word, and then fucking left. That's literally the worst of the worst that it could possibly be. Yep. And then we see some on-screen text that the L.A. County Sheriff's Department declined to be interviewed for us. Shocking! Oh, fucking course they did. Because they're fucking cowards, Mm -hmm. and they don't want to be called out on their shit because they know that this is fucked up, and there's other shady shit that's happening still right now. Always. And they know that. Always. Now, the show or this episode ends with a phone call. Yeah. It's to Patricia Clement, one of the four social workers, from Mary Chenovich, an investigator with L.A. County District Attorney's Office, wanting to speak with Patricia about her prior employment with L.A. County. Yeah. And she only responds with one word. Why? End scene. Dun, dun, dun. Black. All done. Cliffhanger. Yeah. So are we going to get more into her next week? Oh, I bet we are. What's happening next? But, I mean, as frustrating as this was, we actually got through this episode. I didn't scream as much as I thought I was going to. No. But we are now seeing a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. We have two more episodes to go, guys. So please, please stay tuned. Yes. (laughs) They're tough. I know we're both... We're, we're getting through this together. We are getting through Literally. this together. Make sure you have your drink, though, damn it. You need a drink. You need something. <laughs> and thanks, as always, for tuning in to this week's yes. episode of Sheer Crime. We would love it if you would rate and review us on iTunes. Also, don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms at M-M-I-L-L-A-R-D-08, so M-M-I-L-L-A-R-D-08, and Amy underscore Sawada, A M E underscore s-o-w-a-d-a also come join our podcast discussion group yes sheer crime podcast discussion group on On Facebook. facebook we're having fun we're sharing memes we're chatting with you guys we'd love to get to know you and of course give us your requests oh yeah definitely if you have anything that you'd like to hear about we're Let keeping a list yeah yep, we're gonna start a list and we're gonna do them all for you because we're making a list 
Checking it twice. Woohoo! It is so far from Christmas right now. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) We're excited. Thanks so much, guys. We really appreciate it. And don't forget, never run with scissors. Bye, guys. Bye.